these genres are ways of us examining colors of our own humanity. Reanimator is just filled with obsession, greed, perversity, power. I'm Eli Roth, and this is my Shudder original series, History of Horror Uncut. Each episode is a candid conversation with a master of the genre, drawn from raw and unfiltered interviews conducted for my AMC TV series, Eli Roth's History of Horror. These are deep dives into the dark power and wicked fun of frightening movies, the craft that goes into making them, and the ways that horror reflects the anxieties of our times. They're also probing, insightful, and often funny conversations that open up doors into the minds of horror's star creators. The terror begins right after this. Jeffrey Combs' fierce performance in Stuart Gordon's Reanimator was just the first of scores of parts he's played in his busy film and television career. He's an actor who can disappear into a role, but he always brings intelligence and humor to everything he does. Jeffrey discussed his memorable work in Peter Jackson's The Frighteners and much more with History of Horror showrunner Kurt Zienga. So, yes, you're telling me you grew up in California. Born and raised. What led you into acting? That's a really good question. I really don't have a clear answer. No one in my family was involved in anything artistic in any way, shape, or form. Nature or nurture, I don't know. You know, you, you just get drawn to things, you know? I was always curious and enamored of watching movies and television and... How are they doing that? That looks like an interesting thing, but it didn't really occur to me that that is actually something you could, like, do. I think it boils down to opportunity. Just that I happened to grow up where I did. In a larger capacity in the 60s, California was pretty flush. There was money. Schools were good. And nearby was a small college that had a phenomenal theater department because of a visionary man who turned a, what we used to call a junior college theater department into really kind of a epicenter of theater. It was only 20 miles away. So after high school, it was uh, naively, I didn't really know anything how you would go about doing this, but you know, here was a stepping stone for me. It was just right there. And it was an incredible place with a, cross-section of students like me, as well as um, professionals who were jobbed in to do shows in an incredible summer theater department and a high, high level of production value in all departments and a lot of people who set examples to follow. So opportunity, I, I just was 
surrounded with really good examples of how to go about this and with encouragement and all kinds of experience. It just one thing sort of led to the next, led to the next. I just had happy accidents all along the way. That doesn't mean it wasn't hard or challenging or poverty-stricken at times, but a opportunity. When did your path cross Stuart Gordon's? My path crossed with Stuart Gordon in the late 1984. I was doing a play in a small theater in L.A., and uh, once again, these little these little connections. A, a casting director came to see the play and said, you know, you might be right for something that I'm casting. Yeah, right. You know, you hear that. But I got a audition, and I got the material, and then I walked into a room, and here was this shaggy, long-haired dude with a beard, Stuart Gordon. I laid down my audition and uh, got a call back. I remember him saying, you know, this is based on Lovecraft. Didn't really know who Lovecraft was, honestly. Although what I realized is that I did because he was so sort of steeped. Uh, he was everywhere. Everybody was stealing Lovecraft imagery, ideas, concepts in the monster magazines I used to read when I was a kid or some of the movies on TV or at the matinee. I just didn't know the references then, right? So I, I had already been introduced to Lovecraft in roundabout ways. So that's how I first... Uh, collided with uh, Mr. Gordon. I interviewed him a few years ago for this for season one. So oh, really... bless him. I miss him so much. I'm sure he was quite enlightening to you. He's a, he's a brilliant guy. He certainly embraced, I don't want to say anarchy necessarily, but uh, I don't know what it was. Uh, uh, Stuart is a child of the 60s. Any sort of resistance to whatever he wanted to pursue was sort of seen as uh, the game is on, almost. It's a bit of a revolutionary that way. If Stuart was told you can't do that, that would just jack him up to prove you wrong. What was he like as a director? Very intent on his vision. I can't say that all the time Stuart and I were necessarily in artistic harmony. We certainly were great friends. I loved him so much. And uh, we shared a lot of laughs. We had a good bond with humor and silly in-jokes. But sometimes with Stuart, it was always, yeah, just do more. More of that. More of that. Bigger and more. Sometimes I just quietly would modify some of that a little bit for me, but try to also give him what it was that he was looking for. Safe to say Reanimator was your first lead? It was my first opportunity. However, you say first lead. If you look at the billing, I'm not the lead. I am Anne Jeffrey Combs as Herbert West at, at the very end because a lot of people forget that the, well, how would they know? The original script was much more focused on the plight of the lovers, what's going to happen to them, quite a few other scenes where they were dealing with the crisis at hand. It was only in the editing where, A, they had to cut the movie down because it was longer, that they sort of honed in on a more focused storyline where all of a sudden Herbert is a little more um, showing up a little more often. 
I always find it curious that in later DVD releases and stuff, suddenly my name's on the cover, whereas that wasn't the case <laughs> in the beginning, although it was my face on the... But still, it's, it's funny how time sort of changes things. Well, when you watch the film, the characters that jump out are Herbert West and, you know, the older scientists, right? So, Dr. Carl Hill, Dr. Carl Hill, David yes. Gale. I think the unsung hero of uh, Reanimator is Bruce Abbott, who plays Dan Kane. I've kind of likened it to a, a band. Okay, yes, I got some great licks as the lead guitarist, but I got a good rhythm guitarist right behind me. Can't do it without that foundation. Your performance is so interesting and idiosyncratic. I think so. The greatest thing about Herbert as a mad scientist, I think, is both that great combination of arrogance and wit. His condescension is sort of on a different level than most humans. Right. Um, you know, I told you about the casting director seeing me in a play where the character I was playing was an, an arrogant snit. But he was also a um, broken man and vulnerable and uh, fragile. It wasn't too much of a step for me to just kind of jettison all the vulnerability and just keep all of the self-assured cockiness, if you will, of Herbert. I think people are fascinated with Herbert because he personifies an aspect that a lot of people fantasize about, and that is he doesn't compromise on anything. We have to compromise every day, give up some sense of authority or power acquiesce to this or to that big and small ways constantly. Herbert's not in it for power. He's not in it for recognition. He's in it for the work. And there's something really freeing about that. So the consequences of not giving up on your pursuit is uh, pretty powerful. Herbert has a very specific way of speaking. How did you come up with that? Well, I don't know. I really don't know. I mean, you start with the script, the words, you put them in your mouth. He's just a very um, precise fellow. I don't know. I never, never really thought of making too many choices about how he talked. Just more like how he thought. And it just kind of would come out that way. The humor that you bring up was on purpose Early on, Bruce and I looked at each other as fellow actors and said, wow, this movie is really bloody. Maybe we find a release valve every once in a while and just find points where we can let the audience know, not in a uh, nudge, nudge, wink, wink way, but just let them know that we also are in this with them. Because if we just didn't find those tasty little moments, like when Hill's head, I've lopped it off and he's in the pan and I'm taking notes and I prop him into the pan and it falls over. That was an accident on set. Okay, it's a bloody mess in there. It's a rubber head, so it's wet and it slides and falls. The happy accident was there's a, a receipt needle there, you know, with receipts, part of the props on the desk. And I went, hmm, try once, no, try twice, no. Idea, hmm, it's the old comedies in threes. But it wasn't like I'm 
necessarily trying to, to get a laugh, but I'm trying to solve a problem. So we were just trying to find little moments like that. It's got a very dry humor to it throughout. So Yeah, we, we weren't trying to be too cute about it. And we couldn't because Stewart was shooting a serious movie. And I believe that some of the humor that the movie exudes now was maybe a bit of surprise to Stewart after the fact. For a film of its time and its budget level, it looks really good, too. I just can't express to you how fortunate we were to have Mac Allberg. This guy was so gifted. He was Swedish, worked with Ingmar Bergman. You know, we didn't start with Mac. There are some scenes for about a week we shot with someone else and uh, wasn't working out. Things were coming out a little murky and dark. You can see that in some of the scenes. And then suddenly Mac shows up and it is uh, another elevation. I took note right away that all of the morgue stuff, all of the autopsy room, all of that stuff, Mac brought in fluorescent lights. So it has this icky, greenish, antiseptic, clinical quality about it. And nowhere else in the film do you see that. So he was making cinematic choices to just enhance everything. I just thought, what a brilliant choice. The next movie we did, From Beyond, it's just a cavalcade of psychedelia there that he created. His palette was incredible in that movie, too. I also think that it holds up so nicely because it's pre-CGI, and so all of the tricks are cinematic as opposed to enhancing it with technical stuff. You just had to do it there and on the day. It really holds up that movie. It's somewhat dated, but it also doesn't have any of the trappings of making you say, oh, this was in that year. Yeah, you've acted, obviously, an enormous career acting in all sorts of things, many, many Star Treks. A lot of Star almost 50 episodes, yeah. Is it a lot easier to act with something that's physically in the room with you than versus... It's always easier to act with something that's physically in the room because acting is reacting. And I've had my share of reacting to a piece of tape and with nothing behind me like this great set. It's very difficult for an actor to sort of bring it all to life when uh, you can't even imagine what's there makes me think of all the actors in Star Wars. They thought they were making such a dud of a movie because it was like, what are we doing? Because they just didn't know how it was all going to come together. Star Trek, of course, is more, I think, safe to say, more character-based and more about relationships between people than the grand spectacle of the Star Wars films. It can be. Uh, maybe that's small screen versus big screen. You have a lot more time. You got you got the next episode and the next episode and the next episode to sort of flesh things out. Or as on the big screen, you got to move next. Yeah, I, I mean, we could get into sci-fi, but uh, it's also true with horror. These genres are ways of us examining colors of our own humanity. Reanimator is just filled with greed, obsession, perversity, pursuit of knowledge, yes. But what gets in the way of that is all these other tawdry, unnecessary uh, distractions, you know. I would have been just fine. Herbert would have been just fine if not for uh, Dr. Hill being who he is and messing things up. Well, in some ways, it's also an amusing portrait of academia. Right. And that makes sort of perfect sense with Stuart, you know. He was kicked out of college. 
I don't know if you know this, he did a production of Peter Pan. And so, you know, as a director major, you know, so what do you want to direct? I want to direct Peter Pan. Yes, great. And then opening night was actually set in the 60s. And, you know, all of the Lost Boys and girls were little kids nude. They came out naked doing a dance to Inagata DeVita. Yeah, that might have been a little bit of a surprise to the dean. So they politely asked Stewart that maybe he could uh, exit stage left there. It didn't stop him. He, he just went to uh, Chicago and created the organic theater and proceeded to blow Chicago's mind with outrageous theater. He was uh, revolutionary. Yeah, it's definitely a provocateur. <laughs> That's a good word for it, provocateur. I never forget special effects guys would like lay out a map of blood and really get it all tasty. And then Stuart would come in and go, give me that gallon of blood, please. And just spew it. Now we're good. Did you go with him on the uh, trip to the L.A. morgue? What was I that did like? not go with him to okay. the L.A. morgue. However, he uh, set up an appointment for Bruce and I to go visit. And let me tell you, it was horrific. I still have very powerful images, but I, um, it was so necessary because here you have this script and we're talking about, you know, bringing the dead back to life, living lifetimes. These are things you've heard in movies. It's sort of a notion and uh, it's almost cliche. But when you go to a morgue and you are taken into a room with bunk beds of the dead, or they're on gurneys. I remember one guy with hoses coming out of the side of his torso, clearly had passed away during a procedure. The dead are dead, obviously, but they're not coming back. They are an inert, there's no essence coming off of this dead thing. It, it's an impossibility to resuscitate that, which only ignites a wonder and the magic of the notion that you could, which really informed Bruce and I, that this is truly a miracle if we could pull it off. So it gave weight and power to our dream, genuinely. So kudos to Stuart for having us do that little uh, field trip. Although I do have to say that the coroner who showed us around did take quite a bit of glee at our pallid, slack-jawed shock, the trauma <laughs> we were experiencing. I've run into those kind of medical professionals many times. Yes, and also that was sort of a seed to the kind of humor that we would use. It's like, okay, this ghoulish kind of delight is not out of the ordinary. That's something that's part of this world. So note taken, we'll use it, we'll do that. Herbert West Reanimator, the you know, Lovecraft's tale was inspired by Frankenstein, kind of a modern update of the Frankenstein. Movie. Right. Where do you think Herbert fits in the pantheon of mad scientists? Well, I'm glad you brought that up because you gave me a list of mad scientists and I went, wait a minute, Herbert's not on here. 
Listen, I am so honored to be a part of that lineage. I grew up with that, you know, Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, Vincent Price, Peter Cushing, uh, these iconic representatives of this notion of breaking the bounds of what is uh, considered tasteful or in society acceptable. You know, they're always renegades outside of the norm. Let's see, Stuart Gordon, no wonder he was fascinated with this, with, with this notion. I never imagined when I shot the movie we would be sitting here all these years later talking about it. It never crossed my mind. But I sure enjoyed doing it, and I just jumped in with gleeful two feet and uh, tried to personify that spirit that I had seen in many movies before I ever stepped onto the set of Reanimator. I had some pace setters, some very fine ones before me, and I just tried to sort of exude that sort of uh, self-assured quest of your vision. So we actually covered Reanimator in season one. I heard that, but I didn't <laughs> but, know that before. Yes, but I'm so. going to. But um, <laughs> yeah, but at the same time, I can't have a, a Mad Scientist episode without coming back to it, basically. So uh, I'll figure it out. Uh, you know, Lovecraft did not like his story, Reanimator. It was a gig for hire. Hey, you know, we want to do something. A la Frankenstein, uh, you know, here's your here's your pittance uh, to do it and uh, serialize it. And uh, it's ironic to me that that's the story that sort of elevated in the 80s Lovecraft into an even higher pantheon than he was, uh, reignited people's awareness of him, made them be curious about his work again. A serial was a knockoff. Got, yeah, I got paid next let me do something I really want to do now. Yeah, it's definitely different from a lot of his other work. It is. It's far more plot-driven, mm. and it's very much an homage to not only Frankenstein, but all of those stories about grave robbers. You know, there was a lot of fear back then about that. You know, medical schools could not. It was considered ghoulish to autopsy a beloved dead one, and so they actually had to pay people, or I suppose in go themselves into graveyards and get things that they could work on. Yeah, I guess chronologically, Burke and Hare and all of that, the grave robbers were active around the time of, you know... Exactly. Yeah, late Victorian period. So. There's a great ghoulish fascination with all of that and a fear. So it wasn't that long after that that he wrote no. the story then, relatively no. speaking. 20, 30 years, so... Speaking of From Beyond then, what, what happens in From Beyond? What happens in From Beyond? An acid trip, I think. First of all, I, every time I hear the title, I hear Stuart going, it's the only movie whose title is two prepositions. From Beyond, insane movie. One of the harder shoots I've ever had to do. We shot it in uh, Italy. And so here we are in ancient Rome, all the history, all the rich environment. And then uh, I'm having to get into this makeup. I think I counted it almost 30 days. I had to get into that. And it was uh, quite trying on me. It was uh, really tough. In many ways, a lot of my tools were taken away from me. Reanimator was, I'm driving this thing. And there's some dark humor. And it's just colors. And then if you think about it, uh, Barbara and I are kind of flip roles. I'm the victim. 
I'm the one that's reacting to what's going on around me, and I don't seem to have the uh, the fortitude or the wherewithal to uh, combat it. So it was this really interesting uh, dichotomy for me. It was uh, very challenging. Sometimes I felt quite helpless and very ugly. You know, I couldn't eat with the crew when I was in that makeup because who wants to eat with uh, that sitting next to them or even at the table or over there? They they just, you know. Uh, So I just thought it best to just eat in my room. So I was in in my room. I mean, it's the worst. I've got like sores all over my torso, my head's bald, I got a hole in my head, blood on my chin, but don't touch it, you know, eat, but don't touch it, you know, oh God. So I had to go to the bathroom, I think, and so I I left my dressing room. What I didn't know was in the studio, a different soundstage, they were shooting a commercial with a bunch of kids, little kids, and cute little mushroom hats, and they were they were playing in the hallway, and this Quasimodo walks out. And then the screaming started, and the anger of their mothers, uh, you know, how could you do this? <laughs> no, and then there's the language barrier. I can't, you know, scuse, pardonado was about all I could say. And, I, I, you know, it's just, I never felt so hideous. And, you know, I just retreated back into my room. Uh, it's just psychologically scarring for them. I mean, they're probably still ruined because of what they saw in that hallway. Or I'm they've sorry. gone on to careers in the Italian film industry. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Who knows? Maybe I launched a career there and I don't even know it. Does From Beyond pay homage to other mad scientist films? Of course. I mean, Dr. Pretorius, I mean, even the name Dr. Pretorius is an homage to previous mad scientists. Creating a a machine that can help you transcend this existence and see a parallel world. First of all, that's far more Lovecraftian than Reanimator was. And I really think that Stewart, in choosing that particular project to be next was his desire to, now that he's gotten everybody's attention, uh, let's go real Lovecraft, shall we? Let's really examine uh, some of the things that interested H.P. Uh, For instance, the vastness and unknowability and what we don't understand. Well, you have to realize when Lovecraft was writing, I don't even think that we knew what a virus was. I recently read that during the 1918 vaccinations, the pandemic then, they didn't know what a virus was. So they thought it was all sort of uh, bacterial. And you hear stories of San Francisco vaccinating everybody with a substance that was useless, but they thought that it would solve the problem. So Lovecraft this sense that there's something around us that we can't see but is there in a parallel universe, this sort of crosses lines of physics, all kinds of uh, philosophical pursuits. So his instincts were really very correct that there's things around us that we just don't see, but that doesn't mean they're not there, and that doesn't mean that they're not affecting us. 
So his phobias and his fears kind of justified in a strange way. I've done a lot of reading about Lovecraft as well, and it's, uh, the one thing that emerges from it to me is he was very tuned to the science that was coming out of the time, in particular about the nature of the universe and the sheer scale of the universe and what was coming out of even Einstein's revelations. At the same time, he was also taking in the bad science of the time, which was the eugenics science, which, you know, obviously entire nations uh, followed that route to Yeah, disaster. that didn't work out so well. And so that also fed into a lot of his fears and prejudices. So in a way, you see both sides of the sword. But I also like his whole fascination in this creation of this ancient world that before us, there was entities, civilizations, that are down deep or in far off places. They're still there. We are not alone and we are not the first. to the Frighteners. What's the plot, roughly speaking, of the Frighteners? Well, one of the things about Frighteners is I think it's also about people that are damaged. Even uh, Michael J. Fox, you know, it, as, as the movie starts, he's kind of a broken guy. He's had an awful accident where he lost his wife, and ever since then, you know, he hit his head, and ever since then, he's been able to see ghosts. But his life has taken a bad turn. He's, in essence, PTSD. He can't get anything done anymore. He was an architect. He was building a house for the two of them, and it's still in rotting foundation mode. He can't finish it. He's broken. In an uplifting way, it's a movie about him finding himself again, finding happiness, a life again, through all of this craziness. So it's an examination of trauma. I mean, uh, Dee and her mother, that's damaged goods there. Dammers, not so healthy. And even the ghosts have unfinished business. They're, they're, they're kind of in a never world, nether world. They're not going where they should, and they're not in this world anymore. Everybody is stuck. And so it's sort of an examination of how do you get past this kind of hurt and damage. How do you do it? The Grim Reaper. I mean, good God. Main character in the movie. It's remarkable. Although it's not. It's a serial killer who even has unfinished business. It's a um, complex movie. We can get to how Peter Jackson restored film, essentially restored your performance, I think it's safe to say, from the original theatrical cut to the uh, director's cut. There's a lot more of you in it. Is there? Oh, yeah. There's a lot more of you in it. Got the whole... (laughs) Right. (laughs) I'll tell you a story about my chest and all of that Uh stuff. I've done a few movies at this point, but the only experience that I ever had like this was with The Frighteners. You know, filmmaking is a collaborative art. Everybody has their skill set. And I've done a lot of movies with special effects makeup. This is the only one 
where special effects people came to me, Richard Taylor and his crew. They came to me with all of these drawings, renderings of what that chest might look like, okay? Well, first of all, special effects people don't generally do that. They don't come to you and say, what do you think and what would you do? And I knew that I was in a really special place because this is a kind of blurring of territories. This is my vision in this little area and yours is over there and never shall our boundaries be crossed. But they didn't care about those membranes. They just wanted the overall. And so they said, you take these home and you look them all over and tell us what well, you would do. Amazing. So went back and I looked at this great stuff. My only contribution, and maybe if anybody freeze frames, somewhere on that chest is an unfinished tic-tac-toe game. That was sort of my contribution. I had been undercover under some hideous cult, and part of the initiation was that uh, a tic-tac-toe game would be carved into your chest. That's the kind of collaboration that personified that production. Not only with them, but with Peter. I've never had a more cohesive sharing osmosis creative experience with anyone than with Peter. He was quite comfortable in himself, in his own vision, and really wide open to, what do you think? And that's sort of how the look came about. He had some really strong, great ideas, but he was really open to uh, what I might suggest. Well, tell me who your character was, Milton Dammers. Who was Milton Dammers? I sort of approached him as what happens when your patriotism takes you to a point where you will do anything for your country, submerge yourself into any hideous situation out of patriotism to the point where you don't even know how damaged you are anymore. He didn't start out that way, but uh, he certainly ended up, he should have not been on the job anymore also says something about the system when uh, they go, hey, I have a good idea. Let's send Milton Dammers to go investigate this. One of our finest, you know, I just think he's damaged goods from the get-go. Coming in with some weird notions and clearly not well and in a position of power. should mention that he was an FBI agent as well, like special. Special agent which means he was undercover, which is why, why I kind of got away with the haircut. Because my, you know, it's never explained or anything, but my thinking was, okay, this guy, this guy was probably pulled out of being undercover somewhere else. Some white nationalist piece of shit cults somewhere where, you know, everybody wore their hair like that. But so, okay, so now he's back in an FBI suit and he's got the badge again, but, you know, the hair's got to grow out. It's not like he's hanging around in the FBI office uh, like that. It adds to the fascination that, uh, you know, he just shows up looking like that. It's nice to think that he started as like a typical J. Edgar Hoover. Absolutely. Kind of, you know. Uh, he, he started out as a gung-ho patriot and just they destroyed him when i first auditioned for it you know my agents told me later that 
they had submitted me earlier, and uh, they were told, no, we're looking for someone older than, well, now I'm older. But they they were looking for somebody, you know, older to play the role. So they were looking for a long time, and Peter wasn't finding what quite what he wanted. Maybe didn't even know what he wanted. So that in desperation, almost, they said, okay, fine. And they, they had another round of people that might work. And I was luckily one of them. I did everything wrong in the audition, really. I had the material down because I had time to work on it, but I made choices that were not what wound up being on screen. But Peter just so simply said, attack and retreat and don't look at her or don't look at him. Just attack and retreat and no eye contact. (laughs) And to me, that was... I got it. I know exactly what he means. This guy is a bit of a coward. He'll go in, but he won't stay. And he's just so damaged that he can't even have a human back and forth. So that really informed me right there. I got an idea of what Peter was looking for. Not your typical FBI agent. Seems to have a definite uh, phobic reaction to women in particular. Has a problem with women, definitely. This is all writing. This is all right there in the words. All you have to do is read it and you go, okay, all right, going with that. Uh, The other thing I remember is Peter saying, I want you to wear black contact lenses so that your pupils are just dilated all the time. It's almost like yet another cult that he was in at some point in his career was like, you know, a vat of acid that everybody partook of. And he just never kind of came back. He just never, it was just never the same. You look at his eyes and you go, madness. He's just mad as a hatter. And then the haircut, well, the haircut was my idea, I'm afraid. I went to the Wellington Library. I was thinking about what happens when you are so patriotic that you don't ask questions, that you damage your... What is the prime example of that kind of nationalism? Oh, wait a minute. And I found a book of... Uh, a picture book of, of, of all things, Young Hitler. I took it back to Peter, and I said, Peter, what do you think my hair would look like that? And I thought he would say, are you... No. Are you crazy? That No, that's just way out of bounds. That's not what I... But he looked at it, and he just took a beat, and he went, yeah, yes, that'll be good. I went, oh, <laughs> okay, all right. So he's, he's... We're both crazy. We're both crazy. He had a great sense of humor. We were both getting the same silly, dark jokes. The Frighteners is very interesting in that it's this mainstream feeling film, Michael J. Fox, you know, so. Well, I want to talk about that. I do. Um, You're right, but it goes somewhere else. It corkscrews into something that you're not even prepared for. And uh, that's the genius of it. It's a movie that you can't quite categorize. 
because it's many things. And that was a problem for Universal. It was originally going to be a Halloween movie, but then some other production went behind schedule for the summer release. They were looking at these dailies, and they, they said, we'll move it to a summer release. But that didn't solve the problem of how they were going to promote it. And I think that the PR publicity department at Universal just really had their hands full because which movie do you promote? Which one do you do? And I think it kind of split the audience because they decided to go with its live-action Casper with Michael J. Fox. Won't that be fun? And so I think hardcore horror fans probably thought, maybe not tough enough for me. That, I think that definitely probably happened. And then the date night crowd who went, oh, Michael J. Fox, I mean, they went and like, you know, the popcorn dropped out of their mouth halfway through. Like, ah, this isn't quite <laughs> what we, but it's genius. Isn't that what a movie is supposed to do is take you on an unexpected journey, taking you down a rabbit hole of true horror after setting you up thinking this is just going to be some pleasant, safe little ride yeah it seems like an amblin entertainment movie at the beginning and then by the end we've got thrill killing serial unbelievably brilliant uh so kudos to um fran and peter for coming up with something so incredibly unique because those are the things you talk about the things that are just out of the box unexpected I'm very proud to be a part of that movie. And what a cast. Just everybody's bringing it. And Michael J. Fox becomes sort of psychic in the sense he can see ghosts. Did Dammers have a little of that as well? Uh, see, no, I don't think so. I think that Dammers was, had no psychic ability whatsoever, but he had paranoia and uh, a conspiracy that things were going. He was convinced that it was true. I mean, you know, I'm wearing a lead breastplate because, you know, you're going to, what, zap me? It's insane. But it, but it's not because he knows it. It's because he, he he's just so deep in his fear that it's there that he's fighting it. But, it, but it's not that he can see it with his own eyes. I don't think he has any power whatsoever. He feels that if it's there, then it could be a threat to the United States of America and must be stopped, right? Yes, sir. And the president has told me, do whatever you can, even if it destroys your soul. You're never going home to mama. Okay, I have to ask you about the history of Dammer's hemorrhoid pillow. Oh, my God. Okay, this is the, the hemorrhoid pillow is the genius of Peter Jackson working on the fly. It's not in the script. It's not in the script. One of the earliest scenes that I did was the interrogation scene with Michael J. Fox. And I'll never forget that Peter said to me, you know, Jeff, uh, we're going to, uh, you know, shoot your side of it after lunch. So, you know, if you want to uh, stay here and work that out, you can. Which was like, what? So, uh, while everybody went to lunch, I, I stayed in that room and I kind of worked out where I would 
go and and all of that. And at one point, I chose to sit down. It's in the movie. I I, I, I sit down and I stayed there in the first rehearsal with camera afterwards. And uh, Peter came to me and he said, Chief, uh, when you sit down, uh, get right back up as if you have hemorrhoids. And I... <laughs> Of course he would have hemorrhoids. I don't even want to know how he got hemorrhoids, but he's, that makes perfect sense. He's got hemorrhoids. So, <laughs> so you know, I did. I, and then I had to get back up because, you know, sitting, maybe not a good idea for me. And we both got such a kick out of the, the idea that I, uh, I can't sit and I got to get up that this planted a seed in Peter and he went to his prop people and he said, we've got a scene coming up in the patrol car where Dammers puts her in the back and then he's driving the patrol car. I want him to have a hemorrhoid pillow. You know, I want him to have one of those butt cushions. And so, you know, this is on the fly. It's coming up soon. And the prop people are running all over Wellington looking for a hemorrhoid pillow. In fact, they brought some back to Peter. And he went, no, it's not the right size. No, that's not good. And I want it to be orange. Or red. I, I wanted to be, you know, bright color. So <laughs> they're, they're going crazy. You know what that is? You know what they finally wound up on? An inner tube for a wheelbarrow. That's what that is, spray painted. But you know what it is, right? So this is just Peter, like free jazz. He knows the value of something and he's not stuck in his preconceived sort of, it's going to be this way and that's all. If something occurs to him, go, baby, go. So that's where the orange butt cushion came from. You also pull it out like a... Oh, well, and that's the genius of Peter. It's like to build the suspense. What's he going to pull out? Is he going to pull out a gun? What, what is that? Oh, 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 that's sad. That's That's pretty sad. And then, of course, the shot through the rearview mirror, her POV of me <clears throat> sitting down on it and then looking at her like I'm embarrassed. It's, it's just there's so many layers of uh, ridiculous that it's genius. Had you seen his earlier movies before you took this on? Yes, all of his previous movies. You know, this is the day of DVD, VHS, you know, is a blend there. Uh, and I was able to see all of his horror offerings, the puppeting and the Meet the Feebles and uh, Brain Dead, which is called something else. Uh, Dead Alive here. Dead Alive, right. But it was called Brain Dead Around the World and Heavenly Creatures. And it was Heavenly Creatures where I went, okay, I see. This guy is destined for greatness because this is something else indeed. This is skill set here. I even remember uh, no one's ever seen Forgotten Silver. I've seen that. <laughs> I have a you, copy of that. Of course that. you have. <laughs> but that all happened when we were shooting. If anybody doesn't know, Forgotten Silver was this mock documentary that Peter produced and directed about the beginnings of film and all of these marvels of film like first time color, first time sound, First time this, first time that, and it was all found in a trunk of a guy named Reggie McKenzie, who is a, from New Zealand, and he's the forgotten inventor of all of these things in film. 
and they actually got sort of the 60 Minutes of New Zealand to air a segment about this new documentary that was coming up, revealing all of the secrets. He did an Orson Welles, dude. They took it as truth, and they aired it prime time on New Zealand TV. And then afterwards, Peter went, yeah, no, it's, uh, it's all bogus. It's all bogus. And all the footage that we had, is, it's all bogus. And they were not happy with Peter. The people in New Zealand, though, generally speaking, I think have a, seem to have a good national sense of humor. So. Uh, of course they do, but I don't think that the, that the uh, networks were particular. They, they had been, uh, they'd been hornswoggled. Peter is just genius. Is this movie a departure for Michael J. Fox? I think Frighteners is one of his best performances. I really do. I think he's just so solid in this movie. It is a departure for him. I don't think he's ever been in anything quite like that before. And it really showed his, his range. And let me tell you, what you see is what you get with Michael J. Fox. He's really who he is. Approachable, generous funny as hell, self-deprecating. Uh, it was an honor to work with him. Did Jake Busey make for a memorable serial killer? Oh, oh my God. Mr. Busey. I love Jake. I think he's just so good in this movie. He personifies the creep who will kill you. It is riveting to watch and frightening. Ergo, the title. And you mentioned Dee Wallace a little bit earlier, but her... Uh. She's very interesting, obviously, in that she's not what she appears to be, and she's not who you expect her to be based on all the other things you've seen her in up to then. Dee's a marvelous actor. Her instincts are so spot on, and you care for her at the beginning. She's so vulnerable and so kind of broken and shaken, yet another damaged goods. And for what she's been through, and she's kind of timid and weak, and then you find out, oh, not... So much. Dee's got an incredible range as an actress. She can melt your heart and then she can, like, turn it to ice. What did you think of the film when you first saw it? The question might also be, what version of the film did you see? Saw the theatrical, and I really didn't know what to make of it because it wasn't an audience. I wasn't watching it with an audience. Some invited guests there, but it wasn't, like, real world. first time I saw it that way was at the uh, premiere. I think people couldn't quite, people are really comfortable when they can categorize something. And when you get something that's willfully not categorizable, is that even a word? It's intently breaking boundaries and your expectations. Um, you're not quite sure what it is that you're seeing, especially when it's set up to be tonally one thing and then just dives into the deep end of the pool where you, now it's a nightmare I think it's something you have to ruminate on before you go, wait a minute, I want to see that again. It's definitely a movie you want to see again. 
Have you seen the director's cut? Lately? I have not seen the director's cut. Well, you should really. You, I think he'd be very happy with the things that he put back into the director's cut. So you know, another thing that they did on that movie is they changed the script on the fly with me. In that originally, when I'm shot by D with the shotgun, I was set up in a harness, and the shotgun hit me in the chest, and I was pulled back through some doors and then and then I was out of the script the whole uh, head getting blown off with the ghost image of me not really understanding what's going on that was all post and then having me be in the patrol car at the very end of the movie was yet another one of Peter's on the fly I want to do that because that wasn't originally in the script either I guess I should see the director's you cut. You should. It was after he, after Lord of the Rings, so then he could basically say, "Hey, I want to like." Re- I can do whatever I want. Exactly. Thank you. They said, "Sure, okay." Um, so he went back and restored the Frighteners to like the original the, cut, and, and it's really good that way. I want to see this. Is it on a separate DVD? It's on a Blu-ray. Yeah, it's it's, a, there's two. Ver- yeah, it usually comes, you know, director's cut version and uh-huh. then the theatrical version, and then there's a four-hour documentary he made about it. So yeah, yeah. I I tend not to sit down and watch my stuff. Okay, I just you know, it's it's too surreal. And also annoying because I go, oh, God, I should have done that. And oh, I know a better choice now. And oh, wow. Oh, why'd you do that? And I'm too self-critical. So it's not really on my movie going list. Uh, let's watch something of mine. I just don't, you know, it's not where I go. Yes, you're one of one of many actors who's expressed that. <laughs> yeah. I also think my wife would be like, really? Seriously? Really? And how self-centered are you? (laughs) I'll ask you one Star Trek question. One Star Trek question? Uh Uh-oh. On Deep Space Nine, was it challenging to play three recurring roles? No. (laughs) No, it was a joy. It's all, you know... I'm down the road now, and I look back and I shiver a little bit when I think about just how tentative these little things came into being in the first place. That I got a guest star of a character that I played once, and that was it. Okay, good, I did a Star Trek. But my dear friend, René Aubergemois, who had done theater with 10 years earlier, was about to direct an upcoming episode suggested me for the role. There was some resistance from the producers because I just worked for them, but he convinced them. And because of that, I started recurring that role. And then they gave me another one. That one turned blossomed into even a more frequent recurrence. And uh, it, it is, um, if I think about it too much, it's it's frightening to think how tentative all of these little pieces of good luck came to be. The only thing I can say is I was really aware of how fortunate I was. My agents would call me and say they want to book you for an upcoming episode. And I would say, that's great, and here are the dates. And then I would have to call my agent back and go, wait, 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 wait. Um, Which role? Which character? How many actors get to ask that question of their agent? Which role? Is it this week? It's 
And of course, the advantage of the Star Trek is that uh, makeup you know. allows you to to be really versatile. In my acting training, there was a whole session on mask work. And I had a brilliant movement teacher, and he had all these masks, and they were sort of very um, stereotypical, angry face, silly face, clownish face, serious face, tragic face, and you would put them on and look in the mirror. You would immediately physically personify that image. Well, all of the special effects makeup, either in horror or in science fiction, this is this is mask work. This is mask work. And it can't happen. None of it could happen. It's not just me. It's a whole cavalcade of people that create this persona. I couldn't do it without all of that support. Do you have a favorite alien to play? Um, I get asked this question a lot, and my answer is always sort of the same. Do you have children? Just one. Oh, just so, one. So well, you kind of ruined my... Usually people go three, and I go, which one's your favorite? And then they go, oh, I get, I get it. See, I, they're my children, and I love them all. I love the difference between them. I love that in a, in a business where the first impulse is always, it's just human nature, uh, let me um, categorize you. Let me be able to pinpoint who you are so that if I ever need to reference it, I just know who you are. And that's if we want that, that's that's you. Creepy guy, that's you. Uh, funny guy, that's you. So versatility in an industry that doesn't really reward it most of the time. They tend to go with, we want that thing that you do. And I'm really not interested in that thing that, that you know that I do. I'm interested in doing all kinds of things that I like to do. So the special effects makeup allows that, allows you to accomplish a kind of versatility that uh, otherwise, uh, you know, this is what you got. That was Jeffrey Combs. Join us next time for Gigi Saw Guerrero. History of Horror Uncut is a Shudder original podcast hosted by Eli Roth and Kurt Zayenga. Produced by Kurt Zayenga. Engineered by Chris Heckman. With music by Joseph Bashara. For Oddity, Jessica Bastilos and Lacey Oglevoy. For Shudder, Craig Engler, Nicholas Lazo, and Samuel Zimmerman. The interviews in this program were originally conducted for the third season of the AMC television series Eli Roth's History of Horror. Executive producers Eli Roth, Kurt Sayanga, Stephen Michaels, Allison Berkeley, Joseph Freed, Jody Flynn, and James McNabb. Senior producer Ben Raphael Schur. Thanks to Marco Brazis, Kelly Nash, Chris Powers, and Clara Zwerbel at AMC. This is Kurt Sayanga for Eli Roth's History of Horror Uncut. <laughs>